Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The study of word origins and word meanings is called etymology. It's a funny word, etymology. It comes from the medieval Latin word etymologica, which itself comes from a Greek word, which was derived from combining the Greek words etymons and etumon, which means true, and logos, which means word and reason. So you put them all together and you end up with a word that really means the true sense of a word. Someone put the word together for the English language in the middle 16th century, or it might have been used as early as 1398. It's kind of fuzzy. Anyway, etymology can tell you a lot about a thing. Take the word uh, a phonograph, for example, which was the original name for a turntable. Phonograph literally means a writer of sounds. Phono, which means sound in Greek, and graphos, which means writing. The first sound recordings were called phonograms. This also helps explain words like telephone and telephony. Rock music has its own branch of etymology, and I can give you lots of examples. Why do we call a certain style of alternative rock punk? Where did that come from? Same with new wave. Interesting concept, but who decided on that? And here's a good one, grunge. Or how about the term alternative music? Where'd that come from? Well, these are great, great questions, and the answers may surprise you. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this program is a response to a lot of the emails that I've received over the last year or so. People have written to ask about why certain words and terms are used to describe this music that we all love. And I like curious people. They want to know why things are the way they are. They're not happy with an answer like, well, it's just the way it is, or because I said so. So what we're going to do over the next couple of programs is sort through a list of common new rock words in an effort to explain what they mean, how they're used, and how they came into existence in the first place. Let's start with the word used to describe a form of loud, rebellious, energetic, and minimalist rock called punk. I met a girl there and she almost knocked me dead. Punk rock girl, please look at me. What do you see? Let's travel around the world, just you and me, punk rock girl. I tapped her on the shoulder and said, do you The Dead Milkman, with a song called Punk Rock Girl. So, here's the question. Why do we call this music, these songs, these bands, this image, and this attitude punk? Well, the word goes back way further than you might think. Old England, about 1590. It may have been used back then to describe a certain brand of male prostitute. Some people called the young male sexual partners of older men punks. In colonial America, it was a different story. A punk was a type of stick used to light a fire or maybe light a fuse or set off some fireworks. The Americans seem to have appropriated the word from the Algonquin Indians of Delaware, and they spelled it ponk, P-O-N-K, and it was their word for dust, powder, and ashes. By the Victorian era, a punk was a slang word that described either a type of Chinese incense or someone or something who was of poor quality or downright worthless. By the early 20th century, Victorians were using punk to refer to a young criminal, and within the first 30 years of the new century, added the connotation of young and inexperienced to that Victorian definition. Okay, now we're kind of getting somewhere. 
The next step in the evolution of the word came with the release of a 1953 movie called The Wild One. Marlon Brando played a leather-jacketed motorcycle-riding near-do-well named Johnny Strombo. It was the first big film to explore the whole phenomenon of motorcycle gangs in America. This movie, and the attention it gave to this particular subculture, resurrected the old Victorian definition as a punk being a young criminal. Any young tough in a leather jacket was referred to by the establishment as a punk. Now, keep in mind, too, that the release of this movie, 1953, also coincided with the birth of rock and roll. So it wasn't long before the establishment managed to intertwine these two new forms of youthful rebellion. Young rock and rollers were also punks, but not in the modern sense. They were just troublemakers. In other words, the Victorian definition of the word still applied. However, it would still be almost 20 years before anybody applied the term punk to a specific form of music. Throughout the 1960s, there were a series of rough, ragged, and raw-sounding bands who acted and looked tough. They came from the garages and basements across North America. There were the Seeds, there was the Count Five, the Barbarians, the Standells, the Trogs. Some of them wore leather jackets as part of their getup, giving them this rebellious Marlon Brando or James Dean kind of look. And so it was inevitable that some people said the jackets made these guys look like punks. Let me give you an idea of what these groups sounded like. From San Jose, California, this is a group called Count Five with a track called Psychotic Reaction. This is from 1966. Oh, little girl, psychotic reaction. The Count Five, with an example of mid-60s garage rock. Raw rock played by what appeared to be a bunch of punks. But no one was calling this punk rock yet. We still have a couple of steps to go. Through the late 60s, a Detroit rock writer named Lester Bangs began spewing out thousands and thousands of rapturous words on the kind of rock played by the Count Five, Iggy Pop and the Stooges, and others of their ilk. In a review of an album by a Detroit group called the MC5, published in Rolling Stone magazine on April the 6th of 1969, he managed to use this phrase, a bunch of 16-year-old punks on a meth power trip. The word punk slowly caught on with a certain crowd, people who you know weren't into the hippie stuff of the 1960s. It was then inevitable that someone would eventually connect the words punk and rock. And the guy who seems to have done it first, in print anyway, was a writer named Dave Marsh. In May of 1971, he wrote an article on the reformation of a 60s garage band called Question Mark and the Mysterians, and he described this reunion as, quote, a landmark explosion of punk rock. But even then, things were a little unfocused. In 1971, punk rock was more of an aesthetic than a sound. It was a phrase used by writers and critics, not musicians. For example, Alice Cooper was originally called punk rock. Some people believe that early, early kiss could be considered punk rock. It took a fan to focus things. Legs McNeil was a fan of the underground stuff that was happening on the scuzzy side of Manhattan. Not only was he into the garage band music of the 1960s, he loved the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and Patti Smith and the New York Dolls and Iggy Pop. So Legs decided to start a fanzine called Teenage News. The inspiration for the name came from an unreleased New York Dolls song. 
But then he had a look at the artwork for an album from The Dictators, a band that was also part of this scuzzy scene. The album was called The Dictators Go Girl Crazy. Inside was a shot of all four members of the band wearing leather jackets at a hamburger stand. And Legs thought they all looked like a bunch of punks. So that became the name of his fanzine, Punk. Here's what the dictator sounded like. This is from 1975 and it's called Cars and Girls. The Dictators, with Cars and Girls from their Go Girl Crazy album, the album that featured a picture of all four members in leather jackets, which inspired fan Legs McNeil to call his fanzine about this music, Punk. Legs wrote about The Dictators. He wrote about Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and television and all the other new groups that were sprouting up in New York at the time. And as the scene surrounding CBGBs grew bigger and bigger, circulation of Punk increased, and soon anyone who was featured in the fanzine or part of this specific New York scene that was covered by the fanzine became known as a punk artist. The Ramones helped, of course, in their uniform of leather jackets and t-shirts and torn jeans and playing songs that were well, basically 60s bubblegum at the volume and speed of a jet engine. Well, they became the ultimate punks on so many different levels. The leather-jacketed, raw and raggeded Ramones with Blitzkrieg Bop from 1976. It wasn't long before British writers and scenesters happened upon what was going on in New York. And they really liked the word punk. In fact, they liked it so much that they imported that term into the UK. This included writers like Nick Kent and wannabe managers like Malcolm McLaren. This coincided with the rise of the Sex Pistols and The Clash and all the other groups who were really part of the British punk rock explosion which began in the summer of 1976. And so it came to pass that the British version of this movement was also christened punk rock. Got it? It's a long story, but that's how it happened. Next up in our case study of new rock etymology are the names that came after punk. Words and phrases like post-punk, new wave, alternative, and indie. Hold tight. Welcome back. We're doing a little word study on this show. The origins of the words and phrases that we use to describe certain parts of the rock and roll world. We started by tracing the origin of the word punk as it's applied to music. It worked very well for a couple of years when it came to describing a certain underground form of rock with a specific sound and sensibility and fashion and aesthetic. But by late 1978, the original punk rock scene and sound was beginning to burn out. The underground music that was beginning to come out didn't really sound much like the Ramones or the Sex Pistols or the Clash. Listening to this music, you could tell that punk had happened. It was new, it was fresh, sometimes angry, sometimes intense, but it didn't sound like punk. The arrangements and the instrumentation and the fashion sense and the politics were, were all wrong. It didn't fit the established conventions of punk. It was beyond punk somehow, more progressive, more complex, and somehow more evolved. Well, humans being humans, people started to try and find a way to categorize this emerging form of rock. And if you're going to categorize something, you need to give it a name. 
As the original punk rock scene ran down, a number of people offered up new words. There was new music, spelled with a K on the end. That was suggested by a writer named John Savage in late 1978. A writer named Simon Frith tried to get the word after punk, one word, to catch on in the spring of 1979, but neither one of them managed to capture anybody's imagination. The first time anybody can remember the phrase post-punk being used in print was an article in the UK's NME magazine written by Charles Shar Murray in February of 1978. Another writer named Paul Morley adopted the term and began using it in his reviews in 1980. Then along came Tony Wilson. Factory Records, his new independent record label based out of Manchester, championed some of the new sounds coming out of the city. And being something of an entrepreneur, he needed to find a brand name for the kind of music he was pushing if he was ever going to sell it. His phrase was postmodern, and he applied it to groups like Joy Division. Joy Division with Level Terrace Apart, an example of what Tony Wilson, their label boss, termed postmodern music. He was something of a intellectual art snob. And he chose that term because it seemed to fulfill his need to apply the aesthetic of actual postmodernism in the art world to this music. Other people, including the aforementioned writers Charles Shar Murray and Paul Morley, chose to believe that postmodern was actually short for postmodern punk. And that seems to have been shortened to simply just post-punk. Some people put it this way. If punk was all about F.U., Post-punk's main theme was, I'm effed. I like that. Some people really like post-punk. It worked quite well, especially with groups like uh, Joy Division and Gang of Four and several others out of the UK. People use this term to set songs and albums and groups in a scene apart from plain old punk. But others found it to be a little too um, elitist or, or vague, which leads us to the term new wave. Again, songs, albums, and performers who came to be classified as New Wave weren't punk at all, but by listening to them, you could tell that punk had happened. Like post-punk, the term New Wave seems to be rooted in the art school aesthetic of the UK. In its original incarnation, New Wave was a film school term, referring to a creative renewal in the French film industry in the 1960s. It was called Nouvelle Vague, New Wave. The artsy ones amongst the British punk community, including ex-Sex Pistol manager Malcolm McLaren, tried to get people to accept this word, this phrase, beginning in late 1979, as Malcolm sought to describe his world in the months after the Sex Pistols broke up. From there, it seems that the phrase was adopted by a dude named Seymour Stein. Seymour was the founder of an independent New York record label called Sire Records, and Sire was the label that first signed the Ramones and the Talking Heads. You see, Seymour had a problem. In order to sell some records in America, he needed radio stations to play them. But most radio stations were afraid to play punk records. The feeling was that this music was too weird, too violent, and too political. And besides, it was just a fad, so why would we bother? That's when Seymour started using the phrase new wave to market his stuff. It was a way to disguise things and soften the blow. Seymour's marketing term was then picked up by Warner Brothers Records, and then by Polygram Records, and then other major labels. By 1980, New Wave was being used as a catch-all term for a wide variety of music. It came to describe the experimental, artsy, more poppy new music that came in the wake of punk. Unlike post-punk, it wasn't quite as dark or as gloomy. And it certainly had a lot more commercial potential. 
and riding the crest of New Wave were artists like The Police, Elvis Costello, Blondie, Devo, and The Talking Heads. The Talking Heads, property of the Sire Records label, one of the biggest of the so-called New Wave bands. Now, like I said, New Wave was an umbrella term for a huge variety of new rock subgenres. There was power pop, which could include everyone from Elvis Costello to Tom Petty, a new ska scene, the specials, English beat, and so on, and all the flavors of techno pop, all those groups who threw away their guitars in favor of synthesizers. New Wave was at its biggest through 1982 and 1983. The music video certainly helped, too. With the debut of MTV in 1981 and much music in 1983, the world got to see music in a new light. And the stars of the show were the telegenic New Wave bands like Flock of Seagulls and the Eurythmics and, of course, Duran Duran. Duran Duran from 1982. They were probably the best known of all the so-called New Wave bands. We're going to end the first half of this two-part show on New Rock Etymology by tracing the origins of two confusing and contentious words, indie and alternative. That's next. For many years, rock was divided into two main camps. On one side, you had the mainstream. It featured the big, famous bands on the big, major labels. Back in the day, the majors included names like Warner Brothers, Atlantic, Epic, Columbia, RCA, EMI, Capital, and MCA. And they signed bands like Led Zeppelin and The Stones and The Beatles and ACDC and Van Halen. These bands sold millions of records, millions of concert tickets, and millions of t-shirts. They were on TV and on all the magazine covers. In other words, they were world-famous household names on massive multinational record labels. On the other side of this equation... It was all the music that didn't get mainstream attention. This was the stuff that was just too weird or too different or too innovative for the general media and the general public. Now, this isn't to say that these performers didn't have their fans and supporters. They certainly did. But instead of playing to thousands of fans in a stadium, it was more likely that they would play to a few hundred or even a few dozen in a club. And the result was a vast majority of these acts escaped the attention of the major labels or were passed over completely because... Eh, couldn't make any money from them. The only way these acts could get their music out there was to create alliances with small, independent, niche record companies who weren't affiliated with a major label. These labels, which had names like Epitaph, SST, Berserkly, Rounder, Sire, and dozens of others, provided an alternative to the majors. These labels began to emerge in the very late 1970s and early 1980s, and they tended to sign and distribute groups that had obviously been influenced by the explosion of creativity and attitude that had come with punk. So many so-called post-punk and new wave and post-modern bands found homes on these smaller, nimbler, alternative record labels. Hence the name, Alternative Rock. And here's an example of an alternative artist from the 1970s. His name is Jonathan Richman, and he recorded for an alternative label called Berserkly. Jonathan Richman, a prototypical alternative artist, 
by virtue of the fact that he recorded for an alternative label. Now, remember how I said that these alternative labels were independent? That meant that they were standalone labels, completely unaffiliated with the major multinational record labels of the day. The British had their alternative labels too, but they didn't call them that. They referred to their version as indie, as an independent. And this list included Mute and Factory and Rough Trade and Creation and dozens more. The bottom line is that alternative and indie came to mean exactly the same thing. In fact, indie as a term has gained strength on both sides of the Atlantic and has outlasted alternative. It's a better word, and here's why. As non-mainstream rock began to gain momentum through the 80s and 90s, there were all kinds of debates as to what to call this scene. Again, we have to label everything, right? For a while, some called it college rock because it seemed to be the kind of music that you heard on campus radio stations. But that seemed a little limiting, especially for people who weren't in college. R.E.M., for example, began as a college rock band, sort of the Pixies. Some people continued to vote for alternative for reasons that we've already discussed. Like New Wave, this was a catch-all umbrella term that described all the music that came in the wake of punk, the kind of rock that rejected being commercialized by the mainstream culture. Alternative could be anything from, um, well, lo-fi fuzzy guitar rock from a band like Sonic Youth to some electronic pop from Depeche Mode. Heavy industrial music from Skinny Pop and Ministry was alternative. But the word was also used to describe delicate music from artists like uh, Kate Bush or Tori Amos, both of whom, by the way, recorded for major labels. As the 80s turned into the 90s, alternative music began to fragment into dozens and dozens of different streams. There was punk, there was hardcore punk, all the flavors of synthesizer-based music, there was goth, there was industrial, and the list goes on and on and on. So no wonder that many felt that the word was confusing, especially after Nirvana and grunge made the alternative world mainstream. So why are we calling this alternative music now? Because it is the mainstream. It's, it's an alternative to what? Again, the more artsy types favored postmodern. That was watered down by some into modern rock. And currently, though, the most common phrase is just new rock. It's new, it's rock, so it fits. So as a result, the word alternative has lost its meaning, or at least the intent of its original meaning. Meanwhile, however, the word indie has been reassigned and has taken on greater resonance than ever before, thanks to the sudden shift in the music industry that came with the advent of the digital era in the early 21st century. Indie labels are just that, independent from the labels. Well, mostly independent anyway. The biggest challenge an indie label faces is distribution. How to get the CDs manufactured and out to the stores, and then how to collect the money from the sales and return to them so they can pay their artists. This is something that major labels do very well. They have great manufacturing, great warehousing, and great distribution abilities. That's why many indies will cut a deal with a major to take care of that end of the business. They retain their independence, but they subcontract some of their needs to a major. Now, here's an indie band. They record for an indie label called Distort, but Distort doesn't have the distribution oomph that they need to get their band's records to all the places that they have to be. So they subcontract all that stuff to Universal. This is how Alexis on Fire managed to become one of the best-selling Canadian indie bands of the last few years. Alexis on Fire, an indie, new rock, alternative, hardcore, screamo band. Yeah. The word indie continues to mean independent. 
groups who record for labels that aren't associated with the majors in terms of the artists they sign and the music they make. And now indie has pretty much taken its place as a catch-all umbrella term for a certain segment of the new rock that comes out. So we've more or less equalized the meaning of that word indie on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, for now, anyway. Okay, so we've increased our word power just a bit over the last hour. We've tracked down the real origins of terms like punk and post-punk and new wave and alternative and indie, but we're not nearly done. Let me ask you this. Why do we call Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, all that stuff that came out of Seattle in the early 90s grunge? What a dumb word, grunge. Where did that come from? Why is The Cure considered to be a goth band? Why are Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails industrial? You may be surprised at the answers. We're going to cover all that on part two of New Rock Etymology. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.